Morning. Let me ask you to uh, look in your bulletin or turn first to the Second Timothy passage, Second Timothy chapter two, and verses twenty-four through twenty-six. And we're about to uh, we're about to try to put together two passages of scripture. Um, one brief, the other somewhat longer. Both of which would justify a couple of weeks, uh, the shorter one, at least a couple of weeks of Sunday school discussion and examination. And the longer passage would probably, um, could probably serve for three or four weeks uh, in a Sunday school class. So I'm a little frustrated this morning because you're not going to sit here that long. And, um, but we will deal with these passages, hopefully by God's grace, with a particular application that I hope uh, becomes clear and is appropriate. This is what Paul writes. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, he's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, who's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul writes to him, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent, with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, Look at the first passage there in your bulletin or turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 17. Acts, the 17th chapter. I'm going to read just a few of the opening verses here, and then as the sermon progresses, we'll draw your attention to the other verses. But... um, Here is what we read. Paul has left northern Greece, Thessalonica, Berea. He has come south to Athens, left behind Silas and Timothy. And so that's why you read in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them, for Silas and Timothy, waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked, provoked. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So, what does he do? So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day 
with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and if we were in Sunday school, we'd now take some time to explain these two philosophies, but don't let it sidetrack you. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching foreign divinities, which seems to indicate that they took the word Jesus, which is a masculine noun, and the word resurrection, which is a feminine noun, and at first thought Paul was talking about two gods, one named Jesus and one named resurrection. If that seems strange to you, remember the Greeks had the god of fate, uh, the god of the harvest. They, they had all kinds of gods with these uh, uh, sort of names, these nouns, if you will. He seems to be preaching a preacher of foreign dignity, divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him <clears throat> and brought him to the Areopagus, uh, which we'll talk about, saying, may we know what this new teaching, this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend time in nothing else except telling or hearing something new. So let me have a little drink and then we'll pray of, of water and then we'll, we'll pray. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at these scriptures, give us your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, what provokes you? What provokes you? What is it that irritates you, strongly displeases you, perhaps even makes you angry? It would be interesting to make such a list and take a look at it. You know, I could be, and so can you, we can, get, we can be provoked by the most trivial of things. I'm provoked at the St. Louis Cardinals because of their horrendous start in Major League Baseball. It's just embarrassing. It's reprehensible. I'm provoked. And of course, that's all silly. I often find myself provoked by our culture, by our culture's embracing and its praising of ideas and ideals that are abhorrent to God's revealed truth. And I also have to confess I'm often provoked at myself. I'm often provoked at my own sinful patterns of speech and of practice. Now, interestingly, here in Acts 
17, verse 16, Paul, the scripture tells us, is provoked. Now, that's really interesting because it's the same Greek word that Paul uses, Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, when he tells us that love is not easily provoked. That love is not easily provoked or angered. But now we're told that Paul within is provoked. But here in Acts 17, I hope to demonstrate to you that Paul is justifiably provoked as he walks the streets of Athens, which is the center of Greco-Roman culture and learning. He's provoked to find the city filled with idols. And yet, isn't it interesting how verse 17 begins with the word so? Paul is provoked, so what does he do? He's justifiably provoked, so what he does is he continues to teach and speak about Jesus and his resurrection in the Jewish synagogue and in the Greek public marketplaces. Now, we're not told exactly what he says there. Of course, we can go to other places and acts and we can figure out pretty well what Paul may have been saying at this point. But what he says, it catches the, the attention of some philosophers, the learned. And it's interesting that while some of them judge Paul a babbler, others are intrigued by his strange teaching about foreign divinities. And they invite him to speak before a larger audience atop the Areopagus, which is the hill of Ares, which is the Greek god of war, which in Latin, perhaps more familiar to us, would be the hill of Mars. This is Mars Hill. To stand upon the Areopagus, which was the place where the learned loved to gather. They loved to gather in order to hear and discuss new ideas. No matter how strange those ideas, they loved to hear new ideas. Now, let me try to describe for you this setting. And I'm doing this to try to wrestle with the idea of why is Paul provoked? As he stands atop the Areopagus, we know from historical accounts, you know, from archaeological records, that all around him, as he stands on this hill, he can see temples. Temples that have been erected for the worship 
of all kinds of gods. And furthermore, as he stands there and looks at these temples, Paul, who is completely familiar with Greco-Roman culture, he understands that what is taking place in those temples in relationship to the worship of these gods are men having illicit sexual relations with both male and female prostitutes. Now, you need to understand that if we're going to answer the question and not get sidetracked by the question, why is Paul provoked? How provoked was Paul? How provoked would you be to stand before a people who you know unquestionably embrace and celebrate their culture and its practices? They embrace it, they celebrate it, they're proud of it. Now, I'm leading you astray deliberately. I'm deliberately leading you astray. Because that's not what Paul's provoked about. It may be what provokes you, but it's not what provokes Paul. I know you're provoked. Scripture teaches there's nothing new under the sun. You live in the midst of a culture filled with idols. I mean, what is an idol? An idol is simply nothing more than a God substitute. Our culture's idols are not made of gold or silver, but they're constructed from the ideas and ideals of men that deny the truth of Scripture and attempt to supplant God's wisdom with man-made opinions, with man-made gods. And of course, when the revealed word of God is set aside, you're left with your own opinion of judgment or you're you're left with the judgment of the 51% majority, all of which are desperate and futile attempts to determine for yourself, for our culture, what is truth from error, what is right from wrong, what is good from evil, or perhaps, if you're familiar with some of the modern literature, perhaps to conclude, as some do, that there is no such thing as absolute truth, which I always find interesting. There's no such thing as absolute truth except the absolute truth that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Now, there's an interesting bit of logic in all of that argument. It provokes us to live in the midst of a culture much like the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day, a culture in which illicit sexual relations, be it adultery, fornication, or homosexuality, are not only accepted by celebrated, it's the stuff of TV shows, of ads, of movies, of novels, of music, of the internet. You have to be deaf and blind not to know this is true. And we're provoked. And scripture teaches that all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. So how provoked are you with yourself? How provoked? You want me to preach about all this other stuff so that most of you can sit there and go, boy, I'm glad that's not me. Well, if that's true, I thank God that it's not you. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what is Paul provoked about? I think it's important for us to understand the reason why he's provoked here in Acts chapter 17. And I think it's important to look at what he chooses to say when he stands on the Areopagus and to take note of how he says it. We just read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. Paul, as I told you, he, well, Paul is soon to be executed. I'm not sure I told you that. 2 Timothy may be the last book he ever writes. He's about to be executed. He's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, a pastor of the church in Ephesus. And he's writing to instruct him about how to carry out his duties as pastor. And in 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26, Paul tells Timothy how to teach and correct those who are, it's an amazing list. Paul, Timothy, you are to teach and correct those who are, verse 24, caught up in evil, verse 25, those who lack a knowledge of the truth, verse 26, those who have lost their senses and are caught in the devil's snare and taken captive by the evil one. That's quite a list. Wow. It's an all-encompassing list. It includes all kinds of sin, not just sexual, but certainly includes sexual sins. But did you notice carefully what Paul tells Timothy? He's to teach and correct these people, but he is to do so. This always makes me pause. He is to do so without quarreling. Instead, he's to be kind, he's to be patient, he's to be gentle. Now, when you're provoked, is that how you respond? When you have opportunity, perhaps, to deal with the one whose words or whose actions have provoked you? Is that how you respond? One of the hardest lessons for me to learn has been to know that I'm not called by God to win an argument. I like to argue. <laughs> 
I'm good at it. I was raised in New Jersey. Your lifeblood depended upon your ability to argue. I've had to learn not to argue, no matter how provoked I may feel, not to do that. Yes, I am to teach, I am to correct, but I am to speak the truth in love. And, and, and if you've still got your bulletin there, look at the Second uh, Timothy 2, verse 25. Take note of this. Let this humble you. What does Paul tell Timothy? Paul tells Timothy, no matter how clearly or lovingly you teach and correct, it is only the Lord who can lead someone to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. Only the Lord. Now, he can work in and through you, and often does. But Paul says, this is what might happen. And if it happens, it's only because the Lord has done it. Now, going back to Acts 17, let me tell you why Paul's provoked. There's a bottom line to why Paul's provoked. And it's the bottom line for you and me. Paul is provoked by all of the idols in Athens because they have been set up by men to replace God. He is provoked by the fact that all of these beautiful idols have been set up for men to praise and adore instead of the one true God. I'm at this time, at this, I've just begun this in communication with a friend who has publicly announced that he is leaving Christianity. He's, his well-known opinion on, on several cultural issues are out of accord with God's eternal truth. But he insists that what provokes him, what has provoked him to leave the faith is the way, he says, that he hears so many so-called Christians speak of those with whom they disagree. read some of those blurbs of you. Facebook is filled with such stupidity. Just filled with it. And sometimes the people who write, I know who they are. And I cringe. And I don't trust myself to post almost anything publicly. You push that send button, you've done it. You can't take it back. 
here in Acts 17, very quickly. Now this is the path. These are the verses where we could spend weeks. I'm not going to do that. I just want you to see this quickly. So look at verse 22. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in any way, that in every way, that in every way you are very religious. Now, don't get carried away. That's not a complimentary term. It simply means, I know that you believe in supernatural beings. That's all it means. That's all it means. Okay? So we can applaud them perhaps for that, and Paul somewhat does. He writes, first, he says, verse 23, As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. It's a great opening. You know, he ties in to the reality of what he has found in the streets of Athens. Idols have been erected. You know, the Athenians, they want to cover their bets. So if there's a God out there that we might proper, we, we might possibly displease and, and pay the price for displeasing that God, we're going to set up an idol and we're going to say, this is the idol to the unknown God. Don't zap us. That's exactly what's going on here. Exactly what's going on. So what does Paul do? Well, we can work our way through this. In verse 24, and I can speak about all of this at length. I'm not going to do it until we get to the end of the list. What does Paul tell them? He tells them in verse 24, this God that is unknown to you is the creator. And by the way, that God does not dwell in the temples made by man. Now, I, I wish we could see his audience at this point. I wish we could watch them. He tells them, verse 25, this God unknown to you is the sustainer of all life and he doesn't require anything from you to appease him. He doesn't require that. Verses 26 and 27, this God, the creator, by the way, created the first man from whom all nations are descended. Now, you've got to appreciate the impact of that. Think of somebody standing before Nazi Germany in the 1930s and saying, you think the Aryan race is the chosen race? Let me tell you what, we're all descended from the same man. The Greeks thought highly of themselves, the Athenians especially. Paul says to them, the creator created the first man. We all descend from him. Verses 28 and 29, Paul being familiar with their culture, he quotes two of their famous writers to simply underscore the idea that the God unknown to them is the father of all people. And by the way, he cannot be reduced to idols made of silver and gold to the gods of your own making. And then in verses 30 and 31, he calls upon them to repent. Now, people get frustrated by this sermon. 
Because what's not in this sermon? What's not in this sermon is Jesus, his death. It's not there. So this is a terrible sermon. Except you read scripture in context, and we've already been told that in the synagogue and in the marketplace, he spoke to them about Jesus and the resurrection. So just be patient. Just be patient. He quotes these two, you know, he calls upon them to repent and he tells them there's coming a day when this God unknown to them will judge the world in righteousness and furthermore, he will judge the world through the one. And now I want you to understand this. Through the one that he will raise from the, the, from, through the one that he has raised from the dead. Now look at the verses that follow. Once Paul mentions the resurrection, everything gets cut off except for a handful that say, we'd like to hear a little more. I want you to know that by God's enabling grace, I have been able to have conversations with many people who appear to be unbelievers and in the circumstances that I'm talking about are unbelievers who have walked away from the faith. So I want you to know that. I'm not talking necessarily to Athenians, but I am talking to people who bluntly say, I don't believe any of that anymore. You know anybody like that? How many of you know anybody like that? I dare you. Put up your hands. How many of you know anybody like that? We all know people like that. I have become convinced, and with this I'm going to close, that this has become, this has become the focus of my comments. I ask them, what about the resurrection? Believer, do you understand? This is where Paul ends up. And I'm sure when he talks to these other people, as you see, he has opportunity to do, that he explains to them more fully the gospel. But the gospel always ends with the resurrection. This is the bottom line. Paul will tell you, if Christ is not risen from the dead, we're idiots. We're all fools. We should just pack up and go home. So what happens when I say to these people, what about the resurrection? It 
when they really get honest, they usually tell me, well, I don't believe the resurrection ever took place. And I ask them, why do you believe that? What do most of them say? Just can't happen. Just, it's not a possibility. So I say, so I ask them, have you really looked at the, have you really looked at the documents that testify to the fact that the resurrection took place? Now let me tell you what I don't do. This is important, I think. It's important for me. I tell them, I can't prove to you that Christ rose from the dead. But I grew up in New Jersey, five miles from Washington Crossing State Park, where Washington crossed the Delaware on Christmas Eve, won the Battle of Trenton, which everyone born in Trenton knows is the turning point of all American history. That's what I was told my whole life. You know what? I stood at Washington's Crossing State Park with two friends from England. We walked in and saw the great painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. You've seen it. And Paul Biffin turned to me and said, I don't believe it. I said, what, what do you mean you don't believe it? He said, couldn't happen. A bunch of ragtag colonists could not defeat hand-picked English mercenaries. They couldn't do that. I, I don't believe it. Prove it to me. You understand you can't prove that? You can pile up the evidence from now until Jesus comes and the Paul Biffins of the world can still say, I don't believe that. So I don't, I try to answer whatever questions they have as, as best as I can, but I don't try to pile up a bunch of evidence. I try to talk with them patiently and gently and kindly through the issue. But what I want you to understand, this is the bottom line. It's the resurrection. Everything else falls into place. If Christ is risen from the dead, then he is who he said he was. He did what he said he would do. And we should bow down before him and rise up to serve him. So as Paul walks through the streets of Athens, he's provoked because all these idols are meant to take the place of the one true God. And Paul knows who this one true God is because as he proclaims in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ 
is risen from the dead. And how persuaded of that was Paul? All the way to the place of having his head cut off by an axe. It's the bottom line. Whatever your discussions, whatever the issues, whatever the argument, I'm finding myself more and more ending up in the place where I simply say, simply ask gently and sweetly and with wonderful kindness. I simply ask, what about the resurrection? You pray for me, I'll pray for you. Let's pray. Father, teach us these truths. Lead us in the way you would have us to go. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.